Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. I went to Iceland. I know. Uh, it was for fun and not for work, which is why you did not hear any Iceland episodes before I went to there. <laughs> I also did not take any notes for the podcast while I was there, but what I did do is get immersed in a lot of Icelandic history because it's just about impossible to go to Iceland and not do that. Like, you would literally have to go into a hotel and not leave or talk to anyone. Uh, <laughs> there are lots of museums in Iceland and lots of historical sites that are very easy to get to and visibly marked uh, from the road. So uh, you kind of would, would have to work uh, it's the same little symbol as a command key on a Mac is this sort of point of interest sign in Iceland and a lot of other sort of uh, northern European countries. Uh, so it's very easy to find things to learn about. And then sometimes you just take a walk to give your camera battery a little bit more time to recharge. And then you stumble across a consecrated pool that's tied to both Iceland's saga age and historical events during the Reformation. It's just everywhere. <laughs> That one pool is just everywhere lurking. <laughs> uh, that one pool was behind a guest house that we stayed at. We literally had no idea there was anything interesting back there. And then there it was. Uh, one of the events that I learned about that fascinated me the most, though, was from Iceland's much more recent history than that particular serendipitous find. Uh, and it's really on the cusp of how recent we normally get on the podcast. It is a massive and prolonged volcanic eruption on the island of Hamei. Heads up that every piece of non-Icelandic video footage I have seen about this eruption pronounces it in some other way, like Haimei or Haimei or Haimei, but Haimei is closest to how I've heard people actually pronouncing it while I was in Iceland. Haimei is a small island off of Iceland's southern coast, and it's part of the Vestmanair Archipelago, which is also known in English as the Westman Islands. And this eruption is what we are going to talk about today. Iceland is located on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, basically a long, mostly underwater volcanic mountain range that runs all the way from the Arctic down toward the southern tip of Africa. And this ridge exists because of the divergence of tectonic plates. As the plates slowly move apart, magma rises up and lava fills that gap that's created, gradually and sometimes suddenly forming mountains. And most of this happens underwater, but in some places, the resulting mountains are tall enough to break through the surface of the ocean. And this is the case with Iceland, which lies along the North American and Eurasian plates. Iceland itself is a relatively young island, and in the grand scheme of things, it really hasn't been inhabited for very long. The first permanent settlement there was established in the 9th century. The first written record of a volcanic eruption on Iceland is from the 10th century, and volcanoes have been an ongoing part of life in Iceland for all of the centuries since then. Iceland is home to well over a 100 volcanoes, and there are about 30 active volcanic systems. Thirteen volcanoes have erupted since Iceland was settled, with the lengths of the eruptions ranging from hours to months. And a lot of people like to uh, make the average one eruption every five years. This brings us to the Westman Islands. This is a group of 15-ish islands. It depends on how you classify them, where that number exactly lands, along with lots of smaller islets, including some of the youngest islands on Earth. 
One of these is the island of Surtsey, which was formed through volcanic activity in 1963, so very young. Surtsey has been protected since it was originally formed, allowing scientists to study the way species make their way to a new environment. Hamei is the largest island in the Westman Islands, and it's home to those islands' only town, which is also called Vestmanaire. There are a couple of summer homes on other islands in this archipelago, but Hamei is the only one that's inhabited year-round by an actual established community. Although it's the biggest island in the Westman Islands, Hamei is still quite small. It's about five square miles or 13 square kilometers. And there's a 2014 CNN article that describes Hamei as, quote, a barren chunk of volcanic rock. That is not an apt description. (laughs) It is volcanic. It is rocky, but it is plenty green and there are birds everywhere. And in the summer months, it's actually home to one of the biggest puffin populations in all of Iceland. So it is also adorable. I was just going to say we should have a a moment to pause so everyone can go, aww, while they imagine the puffins. I got to hold a puffin while I was there. Oh, my jealousy. It was not a wild puffin. It was a rescued puffin. I did not go pick up a puffin on a cliff. That would be bad. Yeah. Uh, Hamei's coast is largely formed of tall cliffs with basalt stacks extending out into the ocean. In the middle, it's flatter. And before 1973, its most prominent feature in its relatively flat interior was the volcanic cone known as Halgafell. I'm going to take a moment and mention that in Icelandic, an L at the end of the word makes a sound that's classified as a voiceless lateral frictive. This is not a sound that exists in English, and then two L's in a row have an even slightly different non-English phoneme. Trying to replicate this sound throughout the podcast would be extremely distracting, because it's it's like you put the, your tongue at the top of your mouth and then kind of exhale a little bit. It sounds very sibilant and kind of tisky, and <laughs> it would be really distracting to hear two people that don't speak Icelandic try to do that for all of these volcano names. So we're just going to say it the way it is spelled, which is... More like Helgafell. So Helgafell and the rest of the island of Hamei is, or was, believed to be extinct, or at least dormant, by both the residents of the island and scientists. There had been plenty of offshore eruptions of other volcanoes, including that one that created the island of Surtsey a decade before this story happened. There had also been plenty of eruptions on the mainland of Iceland. But Helgafell had undergone no known eruptions since the settlement of Iceland. Everybody thought where they were living was a pretty safe spot to be. On January 21st, 1973, a series of small seismic tremors rattled through southern Iceland, with about 200 seismic events over about 14 hours. Another shallower series of earthquakes started on the 22nd at around 10 p.m., and some of them could be felt on the island of Hamehi, but all were small, with the largest having a magnitude of about three. If this had happened today, these earthquakes would have basically been a 30-hour heads-up to the residents of Hamei that something big was about to happen and they should probably evacuate. But at the time, the field of seismology and Iceland's seismic network were a lot less advanced than they are today. Seismologists didn't have a way of pinpointing the epicenter of these little earthquakes. And those that did think the seismic activity was a warning of something that was going to be in the form of an eruption... We're more focused on Katla, which is a volcano on the mainland, which is known to be active and has, in fact, erupted more than 20 times since Iceland was settled. 
But what this seismic activity was really foreshadowing was a massive eruption on Hemei itself, which we are going to talk about. But first, we are going to pause for a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. When shaking and noise started on the island of Hemei at about 2 o'clock in the morning on January 23rd of 1973, the residents who noticed it and had also felt the earlier earthquakes thought this was just another one. They were kind of like, here we go again. What was really happening, though, was that a fissure was opening up along the eastern side of Hemei, just over a 1,000 yards from the center of town and about 200 yards from the edge of town. That's roughly 900 meters and 180 meters for those who are in the world of metric measurements. The fissure quickly spread. It ran roughly southwest to northeast, stretching all the way from Hemei's southern to its northern coasts and beyond, with submarine volcanic activity going on at either end. At the beginning of the eruption, a curtain made up of about 40 fountains of molten lava launched out of this fissure, which was incredibly dramatic, but not, at least for a first, the first few hours, all that damaging. A natural slope of land kind of directed the falling lava away from the town. And then favorable wind also, at first, kept most of the tephra, which is sort of a catch-all term for a volcanic material that is launched into the air. It kept most of the tephra from coming toward the town. And this meant that even though the residents of Hemei had been taken completely by surprise by the sudden appearance of a huge fissure and a curtain of lava right next to their town on an island believed to be volcanically inactive, they had time to evacuate before things became really dangerous. Volcanoes were a known hazard, and Hemei and the mainland both had evacuation plans in place. The evacuation itself was also aided by another stroke of incredibly good fortune that uh, there were people that even described as being providential. A storm had moved to the region on the 22nd. So Hamey's fishing fleet was all safely docked at the harbor, along with some boats that really worked from the mainland but had taken refuge in Hamey when the gale blew in. In other words, the island had a ready-made evacuation fleet that was already there in the harbor, which was, at that point, not being threatened by the erupting volcano, thanks to the lay of the land and the prevailing winds. The town's fire department and police used horns and sirens to wake residents and inform them of the danger. Residents took what they could carry. They crowded into fishing boats to be taken to the mainland port of Thorlaksutten, and then on to Reykjavik, which is Iceland's capital, by bus. This was a trip that, while not necessarily comfortable, was made safely by all who were evacuated. Although the storm had passed, the water was still choppy, so seasickness was a problem. It also took a lot longer than it takes to get to the mainland by boat today. Now there's a ferry terminal at Landiahutten that's much closer to the island. People who were ill or elderly were mostly airlifted from Hamey's airport to the Reykjavik and Keflavik airports on the mainland, which are about 45 minutes apart by car. The evacuation flights used planes and helicopters from the U.S. manned Iceland Defense Force and Iceland Air. The evacuation was completely successful, with about 5,300 people safely taken to the mainland where they all met up in Reykjavik. And this was a really calm and efficient affair. In five or six hours, anyone who could leave the island had left the island. And from the boats, people could see this curtain of fire along the edge of the town, as well as under the water as they passed by. This makes me think of the 
contrast of how sometimes these things happen and there's always that person that holds out and says they're not going to leave. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone left in a very yeah, orderly well, manner. <laughs> there were a very few people who stayed behind to basically fight the volcano, but there was it was a very calm evacuation. I think the fact that a lot of the adults on the island had been able to see the formation of Surtsey to the south of them from the island uh, and like that had not endangered them probably right. helped people stay calm. I mean, uh, people in Iceland seem pretty pragmatic about volcanoes <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, from my experience in 10 days of being there. <laughs> Later, the government of Iceland sent workers to remove cultural and historical artifacts from the island. 400 head of livestock were also evacuated from the island. Because this was deep in the Icelandic winter, Reykjavik had a lot of hotel rooms available. So after being received, fed, and temporarily sheltered at schools, Hamey's residents who didn't have family on the mainland were mostly housed in vacant hotel rooms. Most of the residents did have family that they could stay with, though, so the housing needs that, that needed to be provided by the government, of, the government of Iceland turned out to be pretty minimal. At the same time, though, you can just sort of imagine how a close-knit community of only a little more than 5,000 people all living together on a little island it is. is. Uh, it was splitting people up, even if they were staying with family, was still pretty traumatic for the community itself. The government of Iceland created and funded an emergency relief fund for people who had been displaced by the volcano. They requested prefabricated housing from Sweden, Canada, and Norway in order to build temporary housing on the coast so the people from Hemei who had made their living in fishing could continue to work and hopefully lower the impact on Iceland's economy by the disruption in Hemei's fishing industry. For the next few months, the only people on Hamey would be the very few people who couldn't leave because of something related to their jobs, like, say, the people who kept really critical things running, uh, and the people who were trying to save the town, as well as scientists, some of whom were from Iceland and some were from elsewhere, who came in to study the eruption in progress. Not long after this very uh, well-organized evacuation was complete, lava stopped erupting from most of the fissure, concentrating itself primarily in one roughly central portion of it. Cinders and debris from this eruption started to form a cone, which would eventually be named Eldfell or Fire Mountain. Within a couple of days, Eldfell grew to 110 yards or 100 meters tall. However, the narrowing of the eruption from a curtain to more like a cone did not mean it was any less destructive. It was actually the opposite that was true. The favorable wind that had kept the volcanic debris mostly away from the town during the evacuation shifted, which sent tephra, burning cinders, and lava bombs toward homes and other buildings. Some of these buildings immediately caught fire. Others were buried and crushed in falling tephra. Some were just crushed under the weight of volcanic material, even if they were spared from catching fire. Emergency crews cleared debris off of roofs to try to keep them from collapsing and prop them up from the inside. They put corrugated iron over windows on the volcanic side of the buildings to try to keep volcanic bombs from shattering them and setting houses on fire from the inside. And they erected barriers along one side of the lava field in the hope of slowing its progression. Moving into February of 1973, the cone continued to grow. It roughly doubled in height by the middle of the month. A very steep rim started to form on one side of Eldfell thanks to a combination of wind and falling tephra. 
A lake of lava started to form in the middle of the cone also, and soon pressure from the lava lake combined with the wind and caused this increasingly steep rim to collapse. The collapsing wall of the mountain rolled across the eastern side of the town and buried a number of houses. At about this time, the volcano also started to emit increasing concentrations of carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide. Air around the volcano became progressively more dangerous to breathe. Birds and other animals began to die as the buildup of gases in the air became poisonous. According to the museum now located on the site of the eruption, poisonous gases were the cause of the sole human fatality directly tied to this eruption. At about the same time as Eldfell's rim collapsed and buried more of the town, the lava flow from the volcano shifted directions as well. A submarine lava flow broke a cable and a pipeline, which were responsible for carrying electricity and drinking water from the mainland to the island. On top of that, lava started to threaten the island's port. Hamei had a natural harbor that was sheltered on one side by a cliff, and this harbor was critically important to both the islands and Iceland's economy. If the volcano filled in or blocked the harbor, it would become vastly harder to get people and supplies on and off the island for the the remediation and cleanup efforts as well. This meant that Heimei needed a way to fight back against this volcano. And we are going to talk about that. But first, we will pause for another sponsor break. Today's podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page or a beautiful gallery or a professional blog, an online store, all of these things are possible with a Squarespace website. Holly and I have both used Squarespace for our personal projects and have been really, really satisfied with how easy it's been to use, how great our websites have looked when we've been done, uh, and how easy it's been to find answers to our questions and help for special things that we were trying to do. Squarespace is really easy. Creating a website is simple with Squarespace. It's a very intuitive process, and you can add and arrange your content and your features with a click of the mouse. There's a free custom domain that you can get. If you sign up for a year, you get that custom domain for free. The templates are really beautiful. There are seamless commerce tools if you're looking to uh, sell things on your website. And there's 24-7 customer support. And every person in the customer care team is an experienced user of Squarespace. And they all work in the Squarespace office. So no matter how technical your problem is, or if it actually seems really trivial, it doesn't matter. Uh, somebody there is going to help you out. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code HISTORY to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, set your website apart. As we alluded to before the break, Heimei was home to a protected harbor that was critically important to the little island's survival. It was one of two ways to get on and off the island, the other being Heimei's airport. On top of that, fishing was one of Heimei's most important industries, and Heimei's fishing industry was also extremely important to Iceland's fishing industry as a whole. 20% of Iceland's fish processing plants were located on the island. So without a working port, the island of Hamey would be far less habitable and far less economically sustainable once the eruption eruption was over. And really, if, if Hamey's fishing industry was destroyed, that was going to be a huge problem for Iceland's economy as well. Real threats to the port began on February 11th, when a huge flow of lava broke through Eldfell's base. It was about 20 meters wide and 20 meters tall, and it threatened to fill in the harbor. 
At this point, cargo planes had to be requested to transport heavy earth-moving equipment onto the island because this flow of lava meant the harbor could no longer accommodate boats large enough to carry them. It was basically making the harbor shallower, so only things that had a shallower draft could really get in and out of there. In an effort to cool the lava and slow it down, crews started spraying it with water, first from the town's fire trucks using the municipal water supply. Then a pumping ship was requested from the United States, which would continue to draw water from the municipal supply. Basically, the municipal water supply was the big volcano-fighting uh, power source until the lava we mentioned earlier broke that pipeline that had been carrying the water from the mainland. So the decision was made at that point to try seawater. The government of Iceland requested more pumping equipment from the United States. And in the end, more than 19 miles, that's 30 kilometers, of pipe and 43 pumps operated by 75 workers at the peak of the operation hurled water at the advancing lava in the hope of cooling it down. Some of this work and other work associated with trying to salvage as much of the town as possible was incredibly dangerous due to the proximity to the volcano, as well as the poisonous gases in the air and the decreased visibility due to steam from cooling operations and blowing ash and cinders. Over the next few months, an estimated 5.5 million tons of seawater were used to try to cool the lava down and divert it away from the harbor and later from the town as well. Basically, the lava heated up the water, making lots and lots of steam and cooling off in the process. As it cooled, the lava hardened, eventually making a wall that molten lava couldn't could creep over but not really break through. So as this creeping lava would sort of top the the solid layer they would spray that part to make this increasingly tall wall of of hardened lava there are some people who will argue that we can never really know if this worked because who knows how the lava would have behaved without all of this human intervention However, the lava flow was stopped uh, 110 yards or 100 meters short of blocking the harbor, and its progress was slowed through the town as well. However, several of Iceland's fish processing plants were destroyed before the water project could really begin. Yeah, I feel like some of the people who were like, well, the lava could have completely shifted course. We'll never know. I feel like they're just kind of naysayers (laughs) (laughs) wanting to say nay about it. The eruption was declared over on July 3rd, 1973. It had been slowing down for a while, but that was really five months. Uh, It was more than five months after it had started. Water cooling operations stopped on the 10th of July, and schools were reopened that fall. It's estimated that 200 million tons of ash and lava fell in and around Heimei during the eruption. Elfell grew to a height of 656 feet, that's 200 meters. About a third of the town was destroyed. Not all of the 5,300 people who had evacuated returned. The population today is only 4,500, so it is still below its 1973 pre-volcano level. Yeah, there are still houses that are, are buried. And a lot of the people who didn't return were people whose houses were under so much, uh, so much volcanic debris that they were like, it's never going to get dug out. (laughs) And even if it is dug out, everything that is in there is crushed. Uh, However, all of that lava and tephra did wound up having some favorable impacts on the island. I mean, there was definitely a huge loss of property 
fortunately not a, a loss of human life other than the, the one person um, who, who was killed because of the poisonous gases. But the lava flow that almost blocked the harbor was made into a breakwater, and it now provides more shelter for the harbor from a direction that it had previously been exposed to. This huge increase in volcanic material on the island also provided a much-needed source of landfill. Previously, if they had needed to fill land in any way, they would have to sort of have earth shipped in (laughs) on a boat, which is not very practical. Um, and the cooling lava under the surface of the island is now one of the island's primary sources of heat and hot water. In 2005, the town council of Vestmanir agreed to excavate some of the houses that were still buried. Lots of comparisons were made to Pompeii. Under that ash, some of the homes were still intact, and even the ones that were crushed still contained most of their owners' possessions. A museum, Eldheimar, opened in 2014, and its centerpiece is one of the homes that was crushed, volcanic debris and all. That museum is really cool. We should that, go. You've already yeah. been. I'll just go. Yeah, if you uh <laughs> if you are in Iceland, you can get to Hamey from a brief uh a brief airplane, a little airplane, little airplane little little airplanes still make me kinda nervous. So I personally uh like the ferry. The ferry <laughs> is about half an hour. Um and this particular we didn't really plan an itinerary beyond our lodging. We didn't we didn't plot out day by day what we wanted to do. And so we were staying somewhere not far away and I realized that this volcano or this volcano museum was on the island and said, Hey, do you want to take the ferry and check this out? And we did. It was a very cool. good trip. Yay. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's how basically, uh, people fought a volcano and mostly won. Yeah. Using what feels to me like a child's logic of can't we just spray this with water and cool it off? <laughs> Child's logic that mostly worked in this case. Yeah. Do you want to polish this episode off with some listener mail? I do. This listener mail is from Rachel. And Rachel says, hello, I'm an avid listener. I discovered the podcast last summer when I started a fitness regimen and was super sick of listening to the same playlists over and over and over. I typically walk one to one and a half miles a day and your podcasts have made my walks much more interesting. I'm writing today after listening to the White Wedding episode. I myself am in the wedding industry. I've been a wedding photographer for almost 10 years. I completely understand the sticker shocks that couples feel when they begin to plan a wedding. And it can seem sometimes justly that things cost more just because the event is a wedding. You had referenced this wedding upcharge in the podcast, and I wanted to take a second to address that and hopefully defend my industry. Yes, it is true, weddings can cost a lot of money, but the misconception that vendors are charging more because they can, quote, get more out of the bride trying to plan the perfect wedding is false. We are in no way trying to price gouge engaged couples. What must be understood is that most wedding vendors are boutique businesses, and most of these businesses are not only owned by individuals, but also run by that same person. If you hire my company to be your photographer, you get me. I don't send out a fleet of employees to cover our events because we develop a relationship with our couples and we feel the success of their day lies in our hands. Because it is impossible for me to be in more than one place at a time, I can only book one wedding per week. It is true that my services cost thousands of dollars, but I am limited in the number of events I can do per year. Because I own my company and handle not only the photographer, photography, editing, business running, meetings, engagement sessions, and communication with my clients, I work in excess of 60 or more hours per week, even in the off-season when I may not be shooting an event. 
When dividing out the hours worked by our gross, you would be able to see that the prices wedding vendors command are actually quite reasonable. This is not just in the photography business, but also for florists, cake bakers, caterers, and planners. Weddings demand of not a lot of attention and hours, and that is why the cost is more than other events. For example, a wedding cake requires days to create, a birthday cake only hours. Cake bakers must deliver the cake and many times cut the cake. None that is required for none of that is required for a birthday cake. So once again, I love your show. Thank you for entertaining me while I'm on my walks. Um, and that is from Rachel. Thank you, Rachel, for sending that note. Uh, I want to say number one, these points are true. Number two, that's not what we were talking about when we said <laughs> wedding markup. Uh, that's basically the exact same explanation I gave to Patrick, who is now my husband, to uh, explain to him why we were going to spend lots of money on a wedding photographer, right? I wanted a wedding photographer who, uh, who knew what he was doing, who would give us pictures that we would be really happy with. Um, we needed to have our wedding where my mother lived so that my mother could be present at the wedding, that having it anywhere else was not an option. And I, that meant that there would be other people who couldn't be with us because of travel. Um, and I wanted to make sure that we would have pictures and video to share with them that would really capture what the day was like. And so I used basically that same explanation to explain why uh, the wedding photographer was going to cost more than Patrick really felt comfortable spending on a photographer but that's not what I'm talking about when I say wedding markup. <laughs> when I say wedding markup, I mean like six identical dresses and the white one costs 2000 additional dollars. Yeah. I mean, right? I, I have some knowledge of this from the bridal gown side because I have made a lot of wedding gowns in my time. Um, uh, both as like a jobby job and, you know, just in making them for friends. Uh-huh. Um, particularly in the larger bridal industry of fashion, like in the larger stores, not, boutique stores are definitely not what I'm referring to in that case mm. either, because th- you will notice there is always, particularly if it is a store that also offers alterations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is not always the case, but there are certainly sometimes instances where they encourage people to order a dress that they know is not going to be the appropriate size because where they really make their money is in alterations. Yeah. I remember seeing an episode of a TV show where someone learned her dress was going to cost $500 to him and she was crying about it. Uh, so yeah, I, I definitely, we, we both know lots of people who work in creative industries and specifically in wedding industries and, and because they are experts in their field, they, they charge rates for their work that I am happy people are able to make, uh, and, and to be able to support themselves doing this work. But that's like, what we were really talking about was things like, um, uh, when I was pricing cakes, I found several bakers whose baseline for wedding cakes was more than double per serving like any other cake. But that was before also having a cake cutting fee and a delivery fee or having talked to the couple at all about what their needs are. And then uh, there's also tied into the whole thing that a whole industry of wedding magazines and websites that, I don't necessarily think intentionally. I mean, we used to have a wedding website as part of our business when we were owned by Discovery Channel. So mm-hmm. we have like some firsthand experience. Were you, you were here at this point. Yep. Uh, we have some firsthand experience in, in writing about weddings and, and what, how wedding websites operate. And, and often 
they maybe not consciously, but definitely do concretely reinforce what is expected of a wedding and what is expected of a bride and sort of put out the idea that, for example, if your cake is not a multi-tier wedding cake that's like exquisitely perfect and beautiful and covered in seamless, uh, beautiful sheerness, that everybody is going to think your wedding is tacky and that is all they are going to remember about your wedding for the rest of their life. And from now on, you will be remembered as the cheap bride who had a grocery store sheet cake instead of one that cost $700. Right. So, so yeah, I definitely respect, like, the hard work that people who own uh, boutique businesses and people who do, like, one-on-one work with couples uh, to to make their day wonderful. We definitely relied on some of those people for our wedding. What I'm talking about is, like, the more, here's a mass-produced dress that right. costs two thousand more dollars because it's white. Or here are mass-produced bras and undergarments that also cost sixty dollars more than comparable ones because they are from the bridal collection. Like that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Well, and I will also, in defense of the bridal industry, because as I said, I have been part of it at various points on the curve in my life. And I'm gonna preface this by saying hashtag not all brides, uh-huh. but some of that upcharge is. In dealing with, it's very stressful sometimes to deal with wedding parties and uh-huh. brides. And I, I don't mean to in any way, um, despair any particular bride. It's just understandable that people get very worked up over their wedding. Yeah. Yeah. They want well, everything to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes things can get a little dramatic and a little, <laughs> Um, high anxiety. And sure. uh, I have to admit, there is a certain degree of upcharge that I'm like, that's just like the fee for your sanity. Like, right, 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 right. Like, well, I yeah. know this is going to be a rough ride, so yep. I should at least make it worth my while. Yeah, totally I feel like understand we're getting, that. Yeah, we're getting sort of into stuff mom never told you territory. I, like, I feel like <laughs> some of that is a, is a circular problem because the, then we circle back onto you. Uh, so much cultural messaging yeah. and so many advertisements and so many magazines that are geared toward this is the best day of your life and it must be perfect. And I would like to tell you that idea is crap. Uh, I took a cue from my dear friend, Juliana Finch, uh, who, who banned the word perfect because like, saying this is my day and it has to be perfect just sets everybody up for way more stress. I do feel also compelled to say, just for the record, you were the antithesis of a bridezilla. You were so easy <laughs> in every way. So I easy. I had so many things that I was like, sure. <laughs> Tracy, I've changed the design of the beading on your dress. Cool. Sure, it's <laughs> uh, yeah, my favorite moment was realizing that the direction cards that I had printed out for everyone who was staying at the hotel had incorrect directions on how to get to the venue because the exit from the parking deck was on, on a different, different street. And I was like, well, <laughs> let's see how life can go on. Anyway, so yes, I, I definitely admire and respect people who are uh, doing good quality professional work as a service that's, you know, that the people is are in a demanding position, but definitely not what we meant when we said wedding markup. So 
If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. Our Instagram is at History, And you can come to our parent company's website. It is HowStuffWorks.com. Put the word volcano in the search bar. You will find a classic HowStuffWorks article about how volcanoes work. It will explain in some more detail about exactly what was going on from that volcano when Hamey basically exploded into a curtain of fire, uh, you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, where you'll find show notes for all of the episodes Holly and I have ever worked on. You will find an archive of every episode we have ever done. You will find uh, some tips about how to search the archive. Uh, up there. There's a lot of different stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.